looks like we haven't we didn't lose too many people from last week. I always get concerned. I saw the parking lot and I saw what I thought was a lot of cars. So I thought, wow, there must be a lot. Of, maybe last week went really well, but I don't think everyone out there is in here. But 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 most people are still here, so that's good. I'm not, I haven't run anyone off yet. So I hope you're enjoying the weather and how beautiful it is. My family and I we went to uh, Hot Springs yesterday, and um, I. We, we got to be outside. It, that's pretty nice for February. And I, I spent the entire day practicing the fine art of how to publicly yet effectively threaten my children without getting arrested. Uh, you know, you know you, I, I, they, uh, we were in a park, and in this park there was a street, uh, uh, there was a car path that would intertwine with the footpath, and my kids were, were invariably running ahead, and I couldn't get them to slow down, and so I would after about the 20th time of them running out ahead, you know, I, I had to yell at my younger one, if you go any further, I'm going to, and then I kind of stop and say, ground you for another week. And, uh, you know, and I think I got all these strange looks, you know, half of the people, the younger people, you know, showed a general look of concern, and, and the older people who had obviously raised children kind of gave me that look and say, yeah, how did that grounding work out for you? It, you know, so I, I, got a, I got a lesson in why we were called God's children uh, yesterday because, you know, God is always having to tell us what to do and what not to do, and we don't listen, and uh, it's a good illustration. Um, tonight we're going to talk about the Exodus. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Abra- the last part of Abraham, him, Joseph going down into Can- uh, Egypt and then the Egyptians coming out. And we all know the story, and when I'm teaching this, I assume, of course, that everyone knows this story. Everyone is intimately familiar with this story. And uh, so when I'm talking about some of this, I'm just kind of, I, I am assuming that most people in here have a, basic interp- you know, have a basic interpretation of the Bible that would assume that they believe in the miracles that took place in the Exodus and uh, all the promises. And I'm just kind of touching on them and trying to tie them back to what else is going on in the world right now. So uh, it's a little fast-paced, and it's full of facts, and some people might not like that, but uh, we'll, we will, we'll get through that tonight. And please stop me if you have any questions or observations. Um, the Exodus and Conquest. Um, this, the Exodus is a, the most important story in the Old Testament as far as defining the Hebrews, the, the Jewish people as a nation. I mean, they celebrate the Passover. That's the most important holiday of, the, of, their, of their calendar because that is the day they escaped Egypt. Now, how did they get into Egypt? And we know that from the Bible. That's because Jacob and his children, Joseph first, and then the rest of them followed him down into Egypt. Um, and this story is... You know, there are miracles, and then there are miracles. You know, there are miracles that are very subtle, maybe like the feeding of the 5,000, uh, turning water into wine. And then there are other miracles, like the resurrection, of course, uh, and uh, maybe the, the apostles being on the Lake of Galilee and, and Jesus stopping the storm that are just very powerful. I mean, they're just very powerful. They're all to note the power of, of Jesus and, and God, but in different ways. The Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea has to be one of the greatest stories of all time, though. The, the seas opening up, allowing the Israelites to pass through, and then collapsing back on the army of uh, Egypt. Of course, a lot of people like to deny that this happened, and they seek all kinds of ways of explaining that away. 
We're going to touch on some of that, some of the archaeological evidence of that time period um, and some of the issues involved in the Exodus. But before we do that, let's go, uh, let's uh, look a little bit about the promise of, to Abraham that God made, the covenant, and in regards to uh, the nation of Israel as a whole. As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They were the, one of the original inhabitants of Canaan. The Canaanites, the Amorites, uh, the Jebusites, there were others. When the sun had gone, gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I, will, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And he says, and he goes, and he promises Abraham that he's going to have lots of children, lots of offspring. They're going to number like the, sand, the stars in the sky. He doesn't necessarily, uh, he says that to Abraham. He doesn't say that to Jacob. He says it to Abraham. Uh, it's not just going to be the Israelites that become the children of Abraham. There are other children, and they become, a, and they become great nations in and of themselves. Let's talk about Ishmael. Ishmael was the son of Abram as well. He was the son of Hagar, which was Sarah's maid, of course. Uh, and his name means God hears. Now, his mother, curiously enough, Hagar was Egyptian. The Bible calls her that, Hagar the Egyptian. And uh, he, she was generally, he's generally depicted as a bad person, but it really, you know, he's really not that bad. Uh, it's really his descendants. He, yeah, he picks on Isaac some, and he, 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 makes, he makes Sarah mad. But what, what teenager doesn't make their, their mother mad, or the, in this case, their, their, their stepmother, or the equivalent? Uh, he's not really that bad a person. Uh, now, there is a lot of extra-biblical tradition surrounding him, um, there are some traditions that say that he was really bad, and then he kind of comes back and he repents. Uh, he had 12 sons, just like Jacob, and he marries the daughters of Esau, uh, or his daughters marry Esau. Uh, he himself actually, uh, you know, he marries into other, uh, other peoples in the area, and there's a good chance that his children also start intermingling with the Midianites, which are, is another brother of, which is another brother of, um, it's another half-brother. There's, there's Ishmael, there's Isaac, and then there's six more brothers. I accidentally left my picture in there from the last week, so just ignore that. Uh, and the angel of the Lord said to Hagar, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell, all, dwell over against all his kinsmen. Uh, who are his kinsmen? And who is he going to war against? Everybody. Now, who, does, who do the Ishmaelites become? And it's, it's relevant to us in modern day. And there are, there's another people that claim Ishmael. And they claim him as their ancestor. Uh, let's go back over the Semites and who they were. Uh, to Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber. Now, Eber, that's the word Hebrew. That's where we get the name Hebrew. Um, you know, Israelites refers to, to Jacob and Israel, but the Hebrew people is actually, it refers back to Eber. 
The elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, they become the Persians. Asher, they become the Assyrians. Apoxad, Lud, and Aram. Aram becomes the Syrians, the Arameans, uh, as in Naaman, the, the, uh, the Syrian. To Eber were born two sons. The son of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended to extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now, I read this first. I pulled this first because there's one name I want to pull out, and that's Joktan. He has another name, Katan. Not Cotton like Tom Cotton, but Cotton like Q-A-T-A-N. Q-A-H-T-A-N. Hold that name in your brain for a second, and let's go to the next slide and look at Abram's other sons. Genesis 25:11. Abraham took another wife, and this is after Sarah has died, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And then Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letzum, and Lemumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, and I'll go ahead and fast forward a little bit to the end. And then that last verse, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. So just like he did to Ishmael, he sends these six other sons away. These other six sons and Ishmael become the Arabs. And they are, their names are used often interchangeably. Uh, when, we, when we look at the Ishmaelites in a few seconds, we'll see that they're also called Midianites. Why is that? Are they Ishmaelites or are they Midianites? Well, they're really inter- interchangeable in some ways. Um, there's another, uh, th- these, these six, so, these seven sons of Abraham, the Arabs claim as their ancestors. They also claim Joktan. Uh, specifically as being the father of the southern Arabs, way down on the, uh, the southern peninsula of the, uh, Arabia. Uh, they together kind of coalesce and become the Arabs. Um, when, we, when, we, when we see the sons of, uh, of Jacob sell Joseph, we see them referred to again. Uh, now, bear in mind that you know, they, talk to, they talk about these guys being Ishmaelites. Well, these Ishmaelites um, are really their, their cousins, right? I mean, their, their, their great-grandfather is who? A- Abraham. So these Ishmaelites are literally their second cousins. They're not that far removed. I, I know my second cousins personally. I can imagine that they probably knew their second cousins as well. I mean, if they were, knew them as Ishmaelites, they knew who they were. So they, met, they, they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their, car- uh, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Now, why are they going to Egypt? Why are these Ishmaelites going to Egypt? Well, where's their mother from? Where's the mother, the matriarch of the Ishmaelites from? Egypt. So they're ethnically Egyptian. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. And then it says something odd. Then it says, Then Midianite traders passed by. 
And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. So the Midianites, Ishmaelites, the Midianites are children of Abraham, so are the Ishmaelites. They're, they're really mixed together. And they, the, these become, they're nomadic people. They're not just, they, they, they're, they're very related to each other. And they, these are the ones that become Arabs. And we use the name Arab today. That Arab, it, it means Abraham. It's a reference to Abraham. Uh, and it's generally accepted as history. It's not that Abraham is just someone that's made up out of whole cloth. I mean, he's been in the history of the world himself, written down in the history of the, of, of the world for 3,000 years. He, so <laughs> when people say, well, the Bible's fake, uh, it's been, if that's the case, it's been faked for 3,000 years. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's very old. There's lots of historical evidence for Abraham. Um, Another verse in the Bible that points to the Midianites and the Ishmaelites as being basically the same people uh, is Judges 8.21. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zolumna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. And then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your sons and your grandson also, for that you have saved us from the hands of Midian. Well, for for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they're the same. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. They were a nomadic people. They were very good at trading. And 2,000 years later, when Muhammad comes along, well, really 1,500 years later when Muhammad comes along, guess what? They're still riding camels, and they're still really good at trading. And that's not an ethnic stereotype. That's the way the Arabs were. And uh, they're traders and raiders. And it's really interesting to contrast the rise of Islam versus the rise of Christianity. Christianity, you know, we're full, we're full of producers, you know, fishermen, carpenters, tent makers. And the characters of, of modern, uh, or the characters of the Quran are traders and raiders. And at first, uh, this... The, the, the Arabs are able to conquer and bring all technology to themselves, and they become dominant over the people around them. But they, that, the, the, uh, the, Muslim, the Arabs, they, they outgrew their capacity to raid and trade. There's only so much of that you can do. You have to, at some point, produce. And that's not really valued in the Quran. What's valued is war and, uh, and taking from other people and punishing other people. Uh, in, in really the Quran, um, where, whereas the Bible is very, it's the book of the Hebrews, but it's not pro-Hebrew. I mean, the Hebrews are awful people. They're the chosen people of God, but they, it, the whole story or the whole purpose of the Bible is talks about how they deny God. I mean, they, de- they deny God's power. They revolt against God. They rebel against God. Whereas the Quran is really Arab culture codified. God speaks Arabic. The Quran says that. The, Bible is written, the Quran is written in Arabic. And you can't really, you're, you know, a lot of people say you're not really allowed to translate it in other languages. And it is sort of that, uh, it's basically the Arab culture, it's been written down now as a form of law and becomes a vehicle by which to uh, spread Arab culture. That's not what the Bible is, is, is at all. So it's an interesting contrast. But uh, if, you, if you look on the flags of the, the Muslim nations, there's the moon. 
The moon is very important to the Arabs and the Muslims. And uh, it, it, it goes all the way back to Abraham's father, whose very name meant moon. And the, it's something that is, uh, you know, people just look at it and they don't give it a second thought, but that really is what, uh, that, that, should be an, that should be something we all stop and think about. When we see the Arabs referred to in the Bible, we can see the foreshadowing of who they're going to be. Um, it does not mean that they, it, it's, it's not a curse, it's not, a, it's not, uh, it's not an ethnic stereotype, it's not, it's not uh, in any way saying that they're not as valued any much as any other people, but they are going to make war against all their brothers, and they've done that in, throughout human history. So uh, that's just something that uh, I want to point out uh, when we're talking about the Bible and its reflection on, on history. Uh, let's talk about the 430 years. Uh, the, uh, the other verse that, uh, going back to the, the first part of the verses that I read earlier at the beginning of the lesson, he says, um, he, God says to Abraham, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and a great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Uh, when this, and, then, uh, and then going back to... Uh, I think I got a slide out of order. That's why I seem a little confused. I apologize. The, uh, he talks about th- these people. He, he, we see that he apparently reveals this to Abram through the fire and the smoke, painting a picture uh, for Abram as uh, showing how his people are going to take the, uh, take the land. Uh, they go to Egypt. We all know the story. He goes and he joins his son. His son is in Egypt waiting for him uh, as the famine drives, as a famine, as famine's very common in Genesis, the famine drives them to uh, Egypt. Uh, Joseph reveals himself and he takes care of them and Joseph arrives to a great position of power. Now it's interesting uh, to to look at what happened at world climate at that time. There's lots of evidence for these famines. Uh, the world was kind of going through a cooling spell. And, uh, you know, we, we often think, you know, especially when we're talking about global warming and everything, we often associate uh, global warming with drought. But if you have more warming, more water evaporates and the rain cycles become more efficient. We know actually from this time that the, the land was actually getting a little cooler and it was, there was less rain because there wasn't as much evaporation, and people were being driven into the fertile river valleys that remained. Uh, and one of those, uh, they had problems in China, they had a lot of problems in, uh, in, uh, in the Mesopotamia region, but, and there were lots of people uh, that were going to Egypt at the time. We read in Genesis 41, the, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. And there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when the famine had spread all over the land, 
Egypt opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe all over the earth. And, they, and, and we have seen evidence of a worldwide seven-year famine. Won't get into that too much, but there, there is that. And of course, people debate that. It's not like it's just something that's uh, a foregone conclusion. Um, they go to Israel. They spend 430 years there. Now, there's a little bit of lack of clarity, or there's a little bit of room for interpretation there. And we're gonna, in, even in the New Testament, um, Stephen says one thing about this 430-year period, and Paul says another. And uh, it's, we're just going to kind of talk about this issue. And I'm not going to really make any conclusions, because I haven't made any conclusions myself. Um, the, was this a 430-year period? Uh, something was 430 years. It, there was a 430-year period. It depends on how you define when it started and when it ended. Now, in this verse, it says the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the time of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept, uh, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel through their generations. This is obviously talking about Passover. Um, if you read... If you read uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 6, And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. So he says basically almost verbatim exactly what um, Genesis says. Paul, though, says in Galatians 3, verses 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. And so the, this, the, the, uh, the conversation is, okay, is it 430 years from when the Israelites arrived or 430 years from when Abraham received the covenant and then the law was given. Uh, because Abraham himself, he went into Egypt. Um, he went into Egypt. And uh, in a way, the Israelites were already there before Jacob and Joseph arrived. And also, Egypt itself had kind of extended. I mean, the armies of Egypt were already in Canaan. So it, people do debate on when that began does not mean that it in any way diminishes the fact that there was a 430-year period, and that becomes quite symbolic later on, and we'll talk about that when we discuss evil empires. There's another 430-year period. Um, there's going to be a parallel in the calendar. Uh, we'll talk about that over the next few weeks. So which is it? Four, uh, four generations? When it says four generations, that basically means 400 years. That the, the patriarchs lived a long time. Uh, usually we associate that period with 40 years, but he's not talking about 160 years. He's talking about 400. Um, Exodus 12:40 says 4:30, and I, as I said, Stephen indicates 400. That's a round number, though. And then 4:30 it's, uh, is what Paul said. But he, again, he he, said, he starts it when the covenant was given and when Abraham received the law. So um, 
when was the Exodus? You know, that's another question that people like to debate. Uh, first of all, you know, there, you know the, the skeptics will say that there's not really evidence of an Exodus. There's really not even evidence of the Hebrew people coming out of Egypt. Well, okay, where did they come from? <laughs> I mean, there, there, is, there, there is a Hebrew people. It's like people who tried to deny that Israel is the historical home of the Jews. Well, the Jews had to come from somewhere. I mean, and I think if they, if they say they came from Israel, if they say they came from Palestine, I think that's a good place to start. Um, they didn't just make it up. And you, when you hear some of the propaganda, especially some of the propaganda that is very anti-Israel, uh, anti-Semitic even, and uh, pro-Palestinian, uh, they basically try to make the argument that the Israelites were never there to begin with, and that's really quite, uh, that's quite false. Uh, they had to have been there at some point. Um, early Exodus, if you, when I say plainly read, I don't mean, well, it's obvious. You read, pick up the Bible and you read it. It's obvious. That's not really what I mean by that. What I mean is, is if you take the dates uh, in, in uh, let's see, let me make sure I didn't, I don't think I pulled it. If you take the dates in 1 uh, Kings 6, 1, when they're dedicating the temple, those events uh, happened 480 years after the Exodus. So if we know that Solomon, um, Solomon's temple was constructed in 960, and you add 480 to it, that puts you at about 1440. Um, then also if you look at the books of Judges and you count the years of each judge and you back up, that also puts you around 1440. Uh, the uh, Judges 11.26 talks about Jephthah. Jephthah says plainly that the, the Israelites have been in the land 300 years. And that's another evidence that of, of this early date. I tend to believe the early date. But there are some, there's some problems with it, and it's not... Clearly, just because of skeptics, uh, I mean, it, it, there are some legitimate questions. And sometimes people, I mean, in the secular world, have le- very legitimate questions. And they're not necessarily just asking them to discredit the Bible. They're good questions. Um, Thutmose III and Amenhotep II. Uh, Thutmose III is, if, he, if we're going to date this in the early, if we're going to date this early, he would be the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And... Uh, he was very, very powerful, just like the pharaoh of, the, of, of, uh, of Egypt. You don't get the sense that this is a weak pharaoh uh, in the Bible. You get the sense that this is a very powerful guy who's about to come up against a very powerful God. We know that uh, he waged a great battle uh, at Megiddo. Uh, we'll talk about that in, one, in the next slide. Uh, he he uh, has a son, Amenhotep II, and we know from the architecture that Amenhotep is not his firstborn son. We know that. It's his second son. What happened to his first son? doesn't say, but we know that the, the son of the pharaoh did not, the oldest son of the pharaoh did not live, according to the Bible. Uh, late Exodus, the, most archaeology seems to, to point to late Exodus, but not all of it, and, and that's the thing. There's not, a real, there's not real consensus over the archaeological record um, what evidence there is of Joseph, and I'll go back to the previous slide, there was a statue, there's a statue that has been found in Gideon, or in, in Gishon, where the, uh, the Israelites were, and a lot of people say that this might be a statue of Joseph, and I'll explain that in the next, in the couple, next couple of slides when I get to, to Avarice. 
Um, but there, are, there is some archaeological evidence uh, that some people say is pointing towards Joseph or is pointing towards Canaanite rulers of Egypt. Uh, the Hyksos, as we're going to talk about. Uh, if, if Joseph was one of the Hyksos, if he was one of these Canaanite rulers or people from Canaan, I shouldn't say Canaanite, people from Canaan, um, then that would be about 1700. And if it's 1700, and if you start counting from 1700, and then you add 430 years, that puts you in the late 1200s. And if you've ever watched Cecil B. DeMille's um, uh, The Ten Commandments, if you ever watched that Ten Commandments from the, the 50s, Ramses II, Ramses the Great, is the pharaoh of Egypt, not, not Thutmose III. Um, the... Uh, the, the also, the, the other problem you have with a late exodus or an early exodus is Egypt is still in Canaan fighting for about 150 years after the exodus, if that's the case. So you have this exodus and the Israelites go up there, but Egypt is it's still, he's, they're still walking around Canaan. And you don't really see that when you're reading Judges. You, there is some activity by the Egyptians, but you don't see, you get the idea that the that there's a basically, there, this is a land not dominated by Egypt anymore. But we know that from history that it was at the time. Um, there's a, there's a um, relief from the son of Ramses II called Merneptah, and it's, uh, it refers to the Hebrew nation. It's the earliest reference to the Hebrew nation outside in, in history, and it refers to the Hebrews as a nation in the 1200s. Now, when I say it refers to the Hebrews as a nation, it definitively refers to the Hebrews. I mean, th- there is not one legitimate critic of this, of this um, steel. And a steel is a big, basically a tablet or a, a column um, that's been carved. There's no one that's going to say that that's not talking about the Hebrews. Everyone says it is. And that, is, uh, a, that, that steel dates to about 1240. And now a lot of people say, well, if, that, if, if, if the... The inscription says that Merneptah destroyed the nation of the Hebrews. That's, you know, if they'd only been released 50 years before, they wouldn't have had time to become a nation. Well, they were already a, a nation when they left, right? I mean, I think that that's not a good... That some people try to use that as evidence for the early date. I don't, I'm not so sure. But it's a very, very, very exact reference to the Hebrews. Um, Edom and Moab and Lachish, Deborah and Bethel... Uh, on Edom and Moab, we have really no archaeological evidence of them until about the 1200s. So, if, you're, if, if the Israelites are going to be fighting them, uh, you know, would there, if they're going to be fight, fighting a sophisticated people, uh, they didn't seem to be very sophisticated by 1440. But that's not really, a, in my opinion, a great argument, but I wanted to mention it. Mention it. Also, Lachis, Debir, and Bethel, those cities, we all have archaeological evidence that they were destroyed in the 1200s. Um, just that, that kind of maps out with what uh, we think about Joshua. If he, Joshua was going through there in the, in the early 1200s B.C., around 1270, 1280, then that makes sense. Uh, now, there's lots of destructions of lots of cities. They've all been dated so they should all line up at exactly the same time. And unfortunately, they, they don't. 
uh, some kind of point to an early date, some kind of point to a late date. Uh, the, um, I'm going go, to skip ahead and then I'm going to back up here. Let's see. I should... Did I miss it? Maybe I took the slide out. Well, if I get there, I get there. I'll go ahead and mention it, and then I'll skip it. Um, the, uh, there's two towns that you would definitely expect to see, see in the... Uh, you would definitely be interested in studying if you're wanting to study the Exodus. You would want to look at Jericho. Jericho, we know where Jericho is. We would want to see if there was some kind of destruction that occurred around 1400 B.C. And at there, there was a, a guy uh, that did go and study the ruins of Jericho, and originally he said, yes, this, this, this city has been destroyed in 1400. Uh, a lot of people came back after that and, and challenged him and, and said that they really can't, um, they really can't pinpoint the destruction of, of Jericho at that time. And actually, there have been several cities on that. There have been several phases of Jericho that have been destroyed. Um, and, but a lot of people have said that the erosion at Jericho was so bad, you can't really date it. It's just destroyed, but they don't know, they can't really date it, and they shouldn't expect it to. And if you know the, where Jericho is, it's at the Salt Sea, there's lots of minerals, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of reasons why there's a lot of erosion. There's another city on the north side of Israel called Hazor, and that description of, of the of the, Jew, of the Israelites destroying Hazor is very exact. It's a very large city at the, for that time, and it was leveled. And the archaeologists are pretty uh, united in their verdict of that. They say it was destroyed in the 1400s, which is, uh, in fact, they actually put it right at 1400. And if you believe in an early date, 1440 for the Exodus, 1400 is 40 years later. That's exactly when Joseph would have showed up, or Joshua would have shown up to destroy it. Um, there are lots of uh, cities that are mentioned in the, in, the, in the book of Joshua. A lot of them are only 1,000, 2,000 people, and you're, and you're not going to get a lot of great archaeological evidence out of that. And as far as future digging is concerned, uh, there are people living on top of a lot of these cities, and ne- neither the Jews nor the Muslims that, that are living on tops of these cities are, are in any mood to start digging because they are not so sure if it's going to support their narrative or not. So they dig when they can, and everything is, um, and, they, and they get what information they can. Um, when, I was, uh, when I graduated from Harding in 98, I took a summer job uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was, I was actually a part of an archaeological dig uh, we were digging up Indian mounds, of course. There were no, uh, we weren't uh, looking for the Mormon uh, archaeology or anything. Uh, we were, we were in, um, we were, we were in Nashville. We were digging up an Indian mound uh, because there was a road that we had to put through there, and we knew there was a large settlement. And it was, it was very interesting. It was very interesting uh, because I learned a lot about archaeology and how people came to the conclusions they did. And I gained a new respect for the archaeologist uh, and was very. Uh, I, I became a little bit less skeptical uh, of what archaeologists believe. You know, they're not out all evil trying to discredit the Bible. They're, they are trying to make conclusions based on what they observe. Uh, I was also surprised at how little evidence they needed to make big conclusions. Uh, but I remember 
shaving dirt one centimeter at a time to, to uncover stuff. And, uh, and uh, we were actually looking for dark circles in the dirt, which is where tree stumps used to be, because that's where the Palisade Wall was for the Indian. There, there was an Indian city right there east of Franklin, Tennessee, and there were like 20,000 Indians that lived there, which is, at the time, you know, Franklin didn't even have 20,000, uh, you know, North Americans until if about 20, 30 years ago. Uh, now that's about 60, but I mean, that's, it, that must have been a hopping place. Now, they didn't have a lot of stone. They had a lot of wood. And it was amazing that you had 20,000 people, according to, and the reason why they said that is because they, they had mapped out this huge area, and they knew about how big an Indian house was, and they had found Indian houses all the way to the Harpeth River, and they had found them all the way back up to, the, to Moore's Lane. You don't know where those places are, but, but they concluded, well, if there was all these houses, and they did a calculation, they figured there was 20,000 Indians in the land. Well, if that's true, that's, a, that's an amazing conclusion. Uh, but what amazed me was there was nothing left. I mean, nothing. There was I mean, hardly any evidence at all that people had lived there. Now, with stone, it's different. You know, you, find, you expect to find more stone, but it's uh, not just going to jump out and say, hey, there was a huge city here. And even a city like Nineveh, as powerful as it was, when Alexander the Great walked by it the first time, he didn't even know he walked by it. It was just a hill. And a lot of these places are hills, and they, they have to get dug up. Um, the Amarna tablets, uh, what do we know about uh, the archaeology the at the time? What do we know about Israel? Uh, we did find these 300 tablets. Uh, and this was 140 years ago when we found these, and this is basically our foundation of knowledge of uh, Akkadian uh, language at the time. Uh, these are not, these tablets are not propaganda, they're not stories, they're letters. And they're letters written between leaders of Canaan back to Egypt. And they weren't found in Canaan, they were found in Egypt. And they're written in Akkadian cuneiform, not Egyptian hieroglyphics. And they're basically communicating with the, with the king of Egypt. They mention the kings of Shechem and Jerusalem. That, and I'm, and I'm, by Jerusalem, I'm talking about the Jebusite king of Jerusalem, the ones that David just killed, uh, but long before David existed. Uh, and in, there's one guy named Ribhada, and he writes continuously. And in 58 of these 300 tablets, he complains about these people called the Abiru. Now, this is, would argue for an earlier date. But he's complaining about the Abiru. And some people say it's not Abiru, it's more like Aseru. And uh, these, who, who could they be talking about? He, and he complains about Hittites to the north, and, and he complains about Abiru or Aseru to the south. Now, depending on how you translate that word, or, uh, Abiru could be Hebrew, and Aseru could be the tribe of Asher. Because these these uh, these tablets come from the uh, from the area where the tribe of Asher went. Asher went to the north. The tribe of Asher went to the Phoenicia, and they and they and uh, the king of Byblos. Byblos is a Phoenician city, uh, not really Phoenician, but where Phoenicia would be Canaanite. Uh, very interesting. Uh, talk about two battles that were fought during this time. Megiddo was fought by Thutmose III. He destroyed the uh, Hittites. 
uh, and he destroyed uh, the a Canaanite, Canaanite um, coalition. Uh, I want to mention it because this becomes important later. Uh, we've heard, we hear the name. There's actually two battles of Megiddo. There's the big, epic, historical battle of Megiddo that becomes known throughout the entire ancient world. That's where the Egyptians destroyed the Canaanites. Uh, that's in 1457. And then there's another battle in 609 where uh, Josiah actually tries to stop uh, Necho from helping the Assyrians, and Necho destroys him. Uh, he... Uh, Necho tells Josiah, hey, your God told me to tell you to stop, and Josiah doesn't listen to him, and sometimes we think, well, Josiah didn't obey God. Why would Josiah listen to ne uh, an Egyptian pharaoh to know what the will of God was? Josiah was killed, um, it, but he, that early death was sort of a, a reward. Uh, he, survived, he died, and then it, after that, Jerusalem was destroyed. Jerusalem was evil. Josiah was actually very good, uh, but their punishment was already... Uh, set in stone as far as God was concerned. Nothing Josiah could do was going to reverse their destruction. And that's the second battle of, uh, of, of Megiddo. And all the word Armageddon in, the New, in Revelation, it's talking about Megiddo. It's the, and it means Ar is hill, and Megiddo, it's Megiddo, it's the hill of Megiddo. And that's where the epic battle of good and evil is going to be fought. It's not talking about the hill of Armageddon, I don't think, in Revelation. It's talking about just the, the great battle, because that was the great battle of the time. Um, and it's, it's also, it became important in Joshua's conquest of the land. There's also the battle of Kadesh. Uh, Ramses is not yet a king, but he's a prince. He's the crown prince. He fights, uh, again, he fights the Hittites this time, and he gets uh, cut off in the middle of this battle. We know, uh, we know enough to know that there were two divisions of Egyptian soldiers, and one gets thrashed, and then the other division is, uh, where is, is led by Ramses, and he is able to fight through the Hittite army and escape. And he goes back and he talks about this great victory, but it really wasn't a victory for the Egyptians. It was an, a victory for the Hittites. Uh, but it's, if anything, it was a draw, I guess. But uh, we know about that battle. If you do believe in the late date, again, this is, uh, if, or believe, if, you get, if, if you believe in early date, the Egyptians seem to be just walking around Canaan up to 1270 without anyone stopping them. And that's why you, you would have a biblical reason to uh, maybe think, well, maybe that 480 years, maybe it meant 12 times 40, that's a symbolic number, see, 480 is a symbolic number, so maybe that wasn't an exact number. I tend to believe early date, but I, I don't think, um, I, if someone can convince me of late date, it's, I don't think I want to hang my entire faith on that discussion. Uh, I think it's an open argument, and I think people that believe either way are, are fine. It's, I think there are biblical reasons to believe in early date and late date, and I think there are historical reasons to believe in early and late date. But that's a good d discussion of what's, what's going on. I do want to talk one thing about the Hyksos. The Hyksos go into Egypt. Who are the Hyksos? The Hyksos are, they are Semitic, not Hamitic like the Egyptians, but they're Semitic people that go into Canaan, we're going to Egypt in about uh, sixteen, about in the, in the, about seventeen hundred. Why? Because they're hungry. 
because the world is contracting and it's pushing all these barbarians into these civilized areas. And uh, they, they, they bury their horses. They are vile. They are uncivilized. They don't, they don't bathe themselves like the uh, Egyptians. The Egyptians hate them. Uh, and, uh, and they create a capital uh, at a place called Avarice. Um, the Egyptians, the, the, the Hyksos, we don't know much about them. There's this, they don't really build a lot of monuments. They don't write a lot about themselves. It's kind of a dark age for the Egyptians. But they do create this city called Avarice. And uh, they're finally expelled in 1522 by Amos I. The, uh, that ring up there is actually a ring of one of the Hyksos kings, what, what we know about him. Uh, when you read the Pharaoh that knew not Joseph, uh, there is a good reason to think, well, if Joseph was... A, if he rose to power, uh, you know, the, 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 if he rose to power, why, how was it that this Hebrew uh, could rise to power in Egypt so quickly? And it may have been because they were not being ruled by actual Egyptians, but the Pharaoh was a Hyksos ruler, and he was very inclined to uh, take a Semitic person whom he would have trusted more than an Egyptian. Um, he, would, he, he, would, he gave him a good position and the, uh, when they were expelled, the Egyptian people really, really hated the Hyksos. And the, the foreigners that were left in Egypt would have been enslaved and would have been punished. And we know that not just from the Bible. We know that from, uh, from Egyptian sources. They did not like uh, their slaves on the, in the north. Uh, there's a wave of xenophobia that follows. There, there's, we know there's a city there. Uh, we've dug it up. It's very large, but the Egyptians destroyed it. They leveled it, and uh, every year when they do archaeological digs, they have to dig up uh, the land, and then they have to basically cover it up. And they have a way of covering it up, and then they're able to re-excavate it quite easily. But uh, it's uh, a lot of people uh, have even said that the word avarice basically means Hebrew man that it is a city of the Hebrew man, Abaris. The A-B-R, A-V-A-R is very similar to the, the Hebrew uh, stem word, and then Ish, uh, that, that would have been very similar to the word that Potiphar's wife used Joseph when she says, you've brought this Hebrew man in to make fun of us. Uh, that, was, that would have been the word she used. So this, uh, they have found no fewer, now this, get this, they have found no fewer than uh, about 13 to 15 rings that have the letters YKBHR on the bottom. On, on, not on the bottom, but on the, on the rings. It's in the bottom of the slide. Now that reference to YKB, or J, that Jacob <laughs> sound, a lot of people have said that this is a reference to Jacob, the house of Jacob. And his, they've, they've, we have found those at Avarice. Those are actual archaeological finds. Uh, the ring is very important. I mean, it's referenced in... In, uh, in Genesis, the, the, uh, Pharaoh gives Joseph a ring. Uh, there's other things that happen. Um, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to kind of skip over this. There's a great eruption in 1550, the Mount of Thera, Santorini. Now it's a beautiful Greek island, but it basically blew its top in the 1550s. A lot of people have tried to tie this to the, the plagues. When I say it blew up, I don't mean it just went, you know, just nice little Mount St. Helens style eruption. No, it was the largest eruption the world has known 
uh, during historical times. I mean, it, the mountain shattered. And it destroyed uh, the, the Minoan civilization. A lot of people think this is the, it started the legend of Atlantis. But a lot of people said that it caused the plagues. It's a little early for that. It, whether you believe in early date or late date, it's too early for the plagues. Um, the Upper Papyrus is another uh, hieroglyph. It talks about, uh, it, it, the, the papyrus itself, it, it goes back to 1250, but the text, they say, is much older. In other words, it was a copy. It was published in 1250, but it was, the story itself is much older. But it talks about servants fleeing. It states that the river is blood. It says the world is turned upside down. It's most likely propaganda from, from, the, from the pharaohs. Uh, and in, the, some people say, well, it's evidence of the plague. Maybe. It may predate the plagues, to be honest with you. And uh, the, in this, in this um, particular, particular uh, document, the, the Asiatics, the, the Canaanites, they're coming. They're not going. They're not leaving. Um, it's inconclusive, but it's interesting. Let's, the ten plagues, people have tried to explain them away. Uh, I don't think you're going to find an explanation um, that is completely scientific. And it, yet, if you do have a, an explanation that's miraculous, it, you would expect God to uh, be somewhat natural in the way it, he did it. Uh, the plagues, regardless of what you uh, believe about their origin, they, they do have a logical order. The water turns to blood. It is not that life cannot inhabit the water. It drives the frogs out. The frogs all die. They're not there to eat the insects. Then there's lice and the flies. What do lice and flies do? They cause pestilence. Uh, the pestilence comes and kills all the animals, and and then the people themselves get the diseases that were in the animals, anthrax, or something else that causes boils. Um, also, if the world is a little bit uh, cooler at the time, they may have had uh, been dealing with plague. Who knows? Uh, where they want to tie in Santorini, the volcano, uh, they want they use that to explain the hail. It's not just normal hail. It's not just big rocks. There's actually fire and ice in the hail. It's very destructive. Uh, the the after they've done that, after you've had this, if there was a big volcanic eruption or if there was some kind of climatic event. Uh, it would have driven the locust into the Egyptian land. And then, then uh, all this change could have produced darkness. We know it was a palpable darkness. It was something that they could feel. It wasn't just dark. Uh, they, they couldn't. It, it could have been ash. It could have been uh, dust from the desert. But they, it was dark. So there are many different ways you can explain how God did it. But it is a, it's, you know, certainly as a Christian, I believe that it was a miracle. Uh, but it, it did manifest itself in a physical world. And then the slaying of the firstborn, you know, what could, could uh, have caused that? There, have, there, there are some theories that are interesting. One theory is uh, that it was a carbon monoxide bubble uh, that came, you know, if, the, if it, it, the argument goes, well, the river was blood, but it wasn't really blood. It was uh, rust, and it, it was an iron. It was, uh, it was very similar to that accident they had in Africa back in 1986 in Cameroon where the, the lake turned red and then a few days later this huge bubble came out of, of carbon di dioxide I said carbon monoxide but I meant carbon dioxide came out of the lake and killed all the livestock and, and it killed a lot of the people that had been sleeping 
but the people that had been awake didn't die because carbon monoxide is heavier than oxygen and it would have gone along the ground. It's an interesting theory. I don't think it explains, um, it, it explains what happened to the, the, the Egyptians. Although, uh, I, 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 one thing I did like about that theory, it did give me at least a chance to think about one thing, and the, uh, the Egyptian firstborn slept on the ground. But when they did the Passover, they had to stand up. And if they were on the ground, they would have died. They had to, they had to eat the Passover standing up. And so, uh, for whatever reason, God was, was drawing a distinction between the two. He wanted, them, he, he, he wanted to draw that distinction. The firstborn Egyptians are on the ground sleeping. They die. The, the, the Hebrews are standing up and ready to, ready to go in haste. And there, there's all kinds of spiritual parallels that make, you can make to that. You know, people that are asleep in their faith are going to die. The people that are ready to work and ready to go and ready to make the journey, they're going to live. Um, then the, the, the Red Sea, I won't go into this because I don't have time. I'm going to Go ahead and just wrap up. But uh, a lot of people say that it means Sea of Reeds. And I actually think that that's wrong. They actually crossed the Red Sea. I don't have time to discuss that. They would have gone uh, down here towards the Gulf of Suez. That's the more logical route they would have taken them. They would have taken much, much, much more closer to Mount Sinai. Uh, there, there is some archaeological evidence of... Um, Maybe a great a flood destroying an army, but the, the, the evidence, though, wasn't found in Egypt. It was found, actually, in Greece. And so a lot of people have said that this, this is evidence of a, a legend about an army being destroyed by a flood in the Greek sculpture. That was uh, actually found in Mycenae. Um, and I'm going to stop because it's time, and I appreciate your time and your patience. Does anyone have any questions? And uh, I have a couple more slides, but I'll just add them on to next week and try not to talk so much. So, okay. Uh, this lesson was obviously not designed to teach you how to become a child of God or, or to encourage you to restore your faith. But if you would like to do so at this time, uh, please do as we sing an imitation song. Thank you.